Christians, we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that when we read the Bible, we're actually hearing God speak. So let's begin by praying that God would prepare our hearts to hear what he has to say from Ruth 3. Lord God, give us understanding so that we may hear your word and obey it with our hearts. Direct our thoughts as we read it so that we can find joy in its truths. Turn our hearts towards all that you teach and not towards selfish gain. Turn our eyes away from things of this world to focus on what you have to say. And help us to listen with understanding so that our lives might be transformed. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please stand while I read. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whom, whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here till morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so... He poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? 
Then she told her everything that Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of God. Please sit down. Now I'm hoping the mic's working. It is. Everything's going well. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, make your word our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. We ask this for the sake of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, uh, as you know, uh, Australians love their sport, don't they? Um, And they love sport of almost any and every kind. But many of them, including myself, love this weird game called cricket. And today, I want to introduce you to one famous cricket player. Um, C.T. Studd is his name. C.T. Studd was born in 1860 into a wealthy family who had made their fortune in India. Anyway, on a particular day, um, his father invited a visiting preacher to come to their home. And C.T. was going out to play cricket and the preacher, cricket and the preacher asked him straight out, are you a Christian? And apparently CT's answer wasn't convincing enough and so the preacher pressed him some more and explained the gospel to him. And CT was converted. And what's more, his life changed from that moment on. As it happened, CT's two brothers were converted on the very same day. That evangelist was very efficient, wasn't he? Um, The three of them went to Cambridge where they achieved a remarkable record in cricket. However, I need to tell you that C.T. Studd is famous for something far more important than cricket. You see, he and six other Cambridge men then offered themselves as missionaries to service in China. Like Hudson Taylor, who worked hard at identifying nationals through wearing Chinese clothing and eating with them, so they did. Then at 25 years of age in China, C.T. received news that his father had left him a very great, a very large sum of money. C.T. prays. He searches the scriptures. He decides he'll give his entire fortune to Christ. Shortly after this, he marries a young Irish missionary called Priscilla. And uh, then after 10 years in China, they're forced by ill health to return to England. And then they turn their inherited property over to the China Inland Mission. And later, CT goes to India and becomes a pastor of a church there. Then they offered to go to Africa. Are you keeping tabs on all of this? This is a lot in one man's life, isn't it? However, doctors, committees, supporters said, no, don't do it. So penniless... Without any financial backing, C.T. left for 20 years of pioneering missionary ministry in the heart of Africa. C.T. Studd was a remarkable man. So today, as we look at the story of Ruth, 
I want you to ask, what is it that makes such people like this? What is it that makes such people like this? What makes them do things that have seemingly no regret and often with great risk attached? So store that question away. This is the question. I want you to keep it in your brain. What is it that drives people like C.T. Studd? And I'll return to those questions right at the end of what we do. So have your Bibles open, Ruth 3. Uh, Let's remind ourselves of where we've come to. Uh, Ruth 1, do you remember Ruth 1? We found ourselves in the time of the judges. We heard that Naomi's life had been a a, a trajectory of sadness and uh, tragedy. However, there was a bright light that had dawned. Although she had lost a husband and two sons, she gained Ruth, a daughter-in-law worth her weight in gold. She was precious. And so Ruth takes the initiative. She goes out to the field to glean grain. And as it turns out, uh, she hears of um, it, it, what, what, what's announced is remar- Ruth's remarkable kindness or, remember that Hebrew word we've been learning these last few weeks? Kesed to Naomi. She has looked after Naomi. She has been generous to her, overwhelmingly kind and generous. Now, That brings us to the chapter for today. Have a look at it with me. Chapter 3, beginning of this chapter, has a focus on Naomi. She takes initiative and look what she says to Ruth in verse 1. My daughter, we must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Then in verse 2, she arranges for a plan where Ruth will visit Boaz at the threshing floor in the night. In verse 5. Ruth agrees to do what Naomi has suggested, what her mother-in-law has suggested. Now be aware, the threshing floor was a time for good eating and drinking among the workers. And verse 7 tells us Boaz does eat and drink. He are told that we're told that his heart is merry. Then at the end of the same verse, we hear that Ruth quietly sneaks into where he's retired for the night. Now, friends, if if you think there's something sort of a bit sus about all of this, you're getting the right idea. (laughs) Okay? Without him waking, she uncovers his feet and lies down just as her mother-in-law had told her back in verse 4. Then in verse 8, we're told that Boaz wakes up with a start in the middle of the night and he finds this woman lying at his feet. In verse 9, he says, identify yourself, and she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Then she then... She then boldly proposes marriage. And the NIV translation that we have has Ruth asking Boaz to spread the corner of your garment over me. However, the Christian standard preserves what's literally there. Christian standard Bible says this, I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. And as it happens, this language of wings is the same language that Boaz used in the previous chapter of the same version of the Bible, the Christian Standard Version. He said to Ruth these words, May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to find refuge. But Ruth adds something. She mentions Boaz as her redeemer, the person who will rescue her. In effect, she's saying, you're my next of kin. 
Then in verses 10 to 12, Boaz responds and he acknowledges that he may be a guardian redeemer of hers, but he also points out there's another one who has priority, another one in the line who could not allow him to do what she's wanting. Then in verse 13, he urges her to stay the night and promises he'll do what he can in the morning. If at all possible, he will be her guardian redeemer and rescue her. Um, and, and so as we read on, in the morning she wakes up before she can be recognised. Now look at the succeeding verses describe what happens then. Friends, I'm telling you as it is in the text. In verse 14, Boaz notes that no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor at night. In verse 15, he gives her a substantial amount of barley and sends her home. In verse 15, he gives her, uh, sorry, in verses 16 to 17, he reports back to Naomi and they talk about what they'll do from here. In verse 18, Naomi suggests that together they wait to see how things sort themselves out. I mean, this has been a very risky venture, hasn't it? And now they're going to wait and see what happens. Naomi's convinced it'll be sorted out within the day. Now, the thing I need to say, if you haven't picked it up yet, I've tried to pick it up in the way I tell the story. This passage is littered with ambiguities. (laughs) The ambiguities are there in the English, and let me tell you, they're there in the original language, the Hebrew. In fact, to use the term ambiguities is a bit tame. I should say this passage is full of double meanings. (laughs) Does that make sense? Full of double meanings. Let me point them out to you. First of all, there is where Naomi tells Ruth to do, what Naomi tells Ruth to do, verse 3. Can you see it there? She is to wash, put on some perfume, dress herself in non-working clothes. And one way to read this is, get ready to seduce the man. That's one way to read it. And the original hearers would have heard it. But it's not the only way to read it. After all, David does exactly the same actions after he gets up after learning from the loss of the firstborn son to Bathsheba. So it doesn't have to have sexual connotations at all. But then in a more, a more literal translation has talk of uncovering legs and wings later on in the chapter. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, that's often used in relation to intercourse. Friends, I'm holding nothing back from you today because I want you to... Try and get what's happening here in this text. And what's more, the term legs is linked to a word that's often used as a standard euphemism for genitals. The Hebrew term to lie down is like our term to sleep. It can have double meaning, sexual or non-sexual overtones. But there's more. In the Hebrew, there's a high proportion of occurrences of the word to know. And in Hebrew, to know can do double duty for knowing someone sexually. So back in Genesis 4, what are we we told? We're told that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Finally, verses 4 to 7 and 14, we're told that Ruth is is to go, come, or go to certain places. These words can also be used in Hebrew for with sexual overtones. So one of the things we need to ask is what on earth is our author doing in this Bible book? What's he doing? Why is he deliberately placing all these ambiguities like this? What's he trying to achieve by doing it? 
Well, in answer to the questions, we need to work out what this passage is about. And as often in storytelling, one of the ways of working it out is seeing whether the author has left us some clues to help understand him. And one of the key places to look for clues is the beginning and end of a particular story. Isn't that right? I mean, you probably learnt that when you were children. Often, you get the beginning right, the end right, you get the story right. So let's have a look at chapter 1, chapter 3 again, verse 1. Look at what Naomi says to Ruth. Can you see it there? She says, my daughter, we, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now, at this point, I'll, I'll let you into a little secret. You see, if you read the NIV, you'll notice that the foot, there's a footnote there that says, under the word home in verse 1, and it tells you that the formal translation should be find rest. And it directs you to Ruth 1, verse 9, where the words find rest are stated. In chapter 1, Naomi is uh, telling her daughters-in-law that they shouldn't come with, with her but find rest where they are. And now here, Naomi's still after finding rest. However, this time it's where? Not back there, but here in Israel. And she's giving Ruth instructions as to how to find rest in Israel, in God's people among God's people. Look at verse 8 and 9 in Ruth 1. Naomi wishes her, for her daughter-in-law that the Lord might deal kindly with her. But it's not quite true. It's not quite right in that. Um, do you know what he really says? He says that God might do kesed with her. That is, God might do that overwhelming overflow of good goodness and kindness. And guess what? We've already seen the Lord do this. In Boaz, the Lord has shown amazing kindness and generosity. So what is actually happening here then? Naomi is seeking to find a resting place, some security for this woman, for Ruth. That's, his, that's her goal. And part of that goal is to find a husband for her in Israel. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, she wishes that the, women would find, the woman would find rest in the home of another husband. But her prayers have been answered overwhelmingly. A husband. But let me tell you something more than that. The great kesed of the good God as well, who will incorporate this woman into his people. It's a beautiful picture. Can you see what's happening? A mother-in-law who wants the best for her daughter-in-law. But God has something even better in mind. He is the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he's given Ruth a husband and a home in Israel. God's people. And now Naomi is joined by Boaz, who's after the same thing. Boaz wants it too. With that in mind, go to the last verse of chapter 3. Flip over again. Naomi notices that Boaz will not find rest until this matter is sorted out. Now, let me tell you, the Hebrew word is different here from verse 1 of chapter 3, but it shows Naomi's goals are on the way to being achieved. Naomi, what does she want? rest and security for her daughter-in-law. 
And Boaz won't rest until he exhausts every possibility of getting that done. What a combination is this? <laughs> what a combination. A good mother-in-law, a good prospective husband, and a God whose nature is to show kesed, overwhelming kindness to those seeking shelter under his wings. Isn't it beautiful? So there's what I think is going on in this passage. Naomi seeking rest and security for Ruth among the people of God, and allowing outsiders to come in. It's about God forging a way ahead for the strangest of people. Friends, this is overwhelming, and there's much more I could say about it. There's so many innuendos in this passage, so many little... But just let, ask this one. I haven't listed them all. If you want them all later, you come and ask me and I'll tell you them. But what if Boaz had misread what happened? What if he had misread her intentions and taken advantage of her? What if she'd become pregnant by him as the result of lack of integrity? Any hope of finding security and rest among the people of God would have been shattered Can you hear what I'm saying? These women, with all their plans, were at great risk, but they were bold, adventurous, and they took the risks. And the results? Well, as God's sovereignty might have it, their risks paid off. Their bold risk resulted in a marriage. That resulted in the birth of Obed. That resulted in the birth of Jesse. That resulted in the birth of David. And that finally resulted in the birth of Jesus the Christ. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that overwhelming? But there's more even to say before we finish. The first has to do with what actually happened on the threshing floor. Please hear what I'm saying. The author of the story did use ambiguities and the original hearers would have heard them. He did use them to show that there were risks in what was happening, but I do not think that he wanted us to think that anything improper happened. Let me tell you why this is. I want you to look at verse 13. Can you see it there? Look at what Boaz says to Ruth. He says, stay the night, spend the night, stay overnight, And it's never used with sexual connotations anywhere else in Scripture. So why should we read it that way? There, and the same term is used by Ruth in chapter 1, verse 16. There she says to Naomi, where will you stay? Wherever you stay, I will stay. No, Naomi is not leading her astray. Second footnote has to do with, do you remember that Hebrew word we've been talking about over and over again? Kesed, God's overwhelming, surprising kindness. That word is used to describe God's character and nature. It means his surprising, overwhelming, relational love and it's used here. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Make sure you have a look at it. I'll read it to you using the special Hebrew word again. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kesed, this mercy, this kindness, this overwhelming love 
is greater than that which was shown earlier. You haven't run after younger men, whether rich or poor. Here's Ruth again. A woman who's been shown overwhelming love. She's taken a risk. But there's one more thing to notice, one more thing. Look at verse 17. Ruth returns home with an abundance of barley that day. And she reports to Boaz what Boaz had said. He had said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And so when Naomi returns from Moab in chapter 1, she uses the very same words. She spoke about having returned empty. So remember, Naomi says, I've come back here, I've returned empty. And now she's found fullness. And that fullness will continue. In chapter 4 we see her. How, how, how do you know that? We'll, we'll keep there. Well, in chapter 4 there's this wonderful picture of her nursing the child of the union that she orchestrated. She has a child, a descendant, in her arms. And the women of the village say to Naomi, the, the pleasant and no longer bitty, bitter, she has a child. There's the details of the text, friends. It's a very intricate text. One of the hardest ones I have ever preached on before. So it's magnificent. But I want to stress one thing from it today. You see, in the past two talks, we've seen men and women practicing keset, God's kindness. As Boaz has reminded us, Ruth practiced it toward Naomi. And we saw earlier, Boaz himself practiced it towards Ruth and Naomi. And as we've seen in this chapter, it's now practiced toward Boaz himself. In many ways, that's at the center of this whole book. The actions of these people are like the actions we see from God. They're acting in a God-like fashion. But we've seen something special in this chapter. You see... To show this sort of love, this sort of kindness to another person is not without risks, is it? But if you know and love God, that's what you'll do. Doing kesed is the right response to what is known about God. And you know the New Testament? In New Testament language, what, what, is, what is that term? In the New Testament, grace and love is the right response to God in Christ. With that in mind, I want to return to C.T. Studd. Remember our cricketer from the beginning, even if you don't support cricket or whatever it is, right? (laughs) Do you remember the question? We saw C.T.'s amazing life. We saw him desert a life of fame for the mission field. We saw him leave a life of wealth for the sake of bringing people to know Jesus. And we saw him throw aside a life of comfort with his family in order that the gospel come to the Sudan in in Africa. Sisters and brothers, what is it that drives such people to such devotion? What is it that motivates them? Well, you know what? CT tells us. You see, his personal motto for life was this. Jesus Christ is God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's potent, isn't it? 
C.T. Stardner knew that God had been overwhelmingly merciful to him. And he knew that if God had loved him so much, he should act similarly. And that would take risk-taking. And it's not just writing out a cheque, let me tell you, though that is important in its own time. No, people like C.T. Studd have been responsible for the gospel spreading throughout the world. My observation is that such self-sacrifice is often missing in our contemporary world. Such risk-taking for the gospel is sometimes missing. And if I can put it to you this way, it's sometimes missing in your generation as well. And my suspicion is it's because we've forgotten God's grace for us. We've left our first love. And today I want to urge you to be fueled yet again by God's overwhelming kindness. Let me urge us all today to be driven from our slumber into a great and overwhelming love for God and his purposes in his son. Let me urge myself to be shocked out of any comfortable situation I'm in. Let me urge you to be shocked by any comfortable situation that you are in. Friends, our world needs desperately gospel people. People captured by the gospel who say, if he has done that for me, what can I do? in response. We need people captured by the gospel, captured by God's grace in Christ, captured by the love of the Lord Jesus and to give themselves financially and in any other way to that gospel. So do you know Jesus? Do you love him? Are you controlled by his love? Then let his love compel you. For Christ, listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says this. So just don't look it up. Oh, actually, if it's there, do look it up. But here it is. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves who died for them, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What compels you in life? Is it the desire for a comfortable life? A house, a car, a relationship, a job, a good career, whatever. If you know what Christ paid for your sin, if you know what it cost the Father to allow him to do that, then I want to urge you today to let that love compel you, urge you on, drive you to take risks allow you to drive, drive you to no longer live for yourself but for him who died for you and was raised for you. Friends, do you hear this? You were bought with a price. That's what scripture says. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your bodies, your souls and every part of your being and let Christ's love compel you. Let it as this church we are in, let it compel us. And may the Lord of surprising love, Kesed, surprise us all again and again and again.
but he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that out of this passage that looked a bit strange, felt a bit strange, looked a bit threatening, thank you that we learn this great thing about you, that you are the Lord of Kesed, of overwhelming love and kindness. And Father, please, please let your love compel us, particularly the love we see in our Lord Jesus Christ, and drive us in our lives as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoops.